and singing how marvelous, how wonderful.
Indeed, how marvelous. Please remain standing, if you would, please, for the reading of God's inspired, perfect, eternal word. We're reading from Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, to following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may be seated. As we come before the Lord in prayer this morning, we want to especially remember our dear brother, um, Fali um, Rabuhangi. He is pastor and teacher in... um, Madagascar, a dear friend and brother in the Lord, committed himself to faithful ministry. We want to especially pray for him today. And then just be reminded that uh, we're here to worship the Lord in all that we do and everything. From the moment that we walk in, we come together as a body of believers to worship and be a sweet-smelling savor before his throne in our singing, in our thoughts, in our hearing, and in our giving. So may the Lord bless us even as we worship him today. Join with me as we pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your abundant, amazing grace that you indeed lavish upon us. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, Lord, you and you alone made us alive that we might see the glory of Christ, that we might confess before you that we fall infinitely far short of your glory. Lord, we pray that as we understand that, And Lord, that uh, we deserve nothing less than your wrath and your judgment, that you and your grace have intervened and you've made a way where there was no way. You've offered your son, your only son, to die on the cross for us, to pay the penalty for our sins, to become the penalty, the one who knew no sins, to become sin for us, that we might know your very righteousness. And so we worship you this day for your grace, for your love, for the salvation that you offer so freely, for the promise of eternal life and the abundant life that we can live now. Lord, may you find us a people that are worthy of the gospel of Christ and all that we do, the very manner of our living. May we be a shining light on a hill for your glory. And Lord, that you would cause us to speak that which is true and honorable, that which is just and pure and lovely and commendable, Anything, Lord, we pray that is acceptable in your sight. May you find that in our lives consistently. Lord, we just ask that you would cause us to not only speak but to live and to worship your holy name through your truth. And Lord, we thank you for the sustaining power of your grace. That, Lord, we're reminded that our Lord Jesus holds all things together through the power of his word. And Lord, we pray that uh, even as we recognize that, that he indeed holds our lives together, our very lives. 
And we ask, Lord, that you would remind us of that even this day. Lord, we want to pray especially for our dear brother, Bali uh, Ravahangi, Lord, as he ministers in Madagascar, Lord, that you would use him as your instrument of righteousness. Lord, that you would use him as a megaphone of praise before your name and before your throne, that the people might hear the glory of the gospel and turn to our Lord Jesus for their salvation and their only hope in this world and the world to come. So, Lord, we thank you for Ravi, and we commit him to you, and we ask your blessing upon him. And so, Lord, we commit now the remainder of our service, our time together. May all be pleasing in your sight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Virgin once said, The Son of God did not die to make men savable, but to save them. He came not that sin might be put aside at some future time, but to put it away there and then by the sacrifice of himself. For by his death he finished transgressions, made an end of sin, and brought in everlasting righteousness. Believers may know that when Jesus died, they were delivered from the claims of the law, and when he rose again, their justification was secured. The blood of the lamb is a real price, which did effectually ransom. The blood of the lamb is a real cleansing, which did really purge away sin. This we believe and declare, and by this sign we conquer. Christ crucified, Christ the sacrifice for sin, Christ the effectual redeemer of men. We will proclaim everywhere, and thus put to rout the powers of darkness. And so we sing, to this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released, I can sing, I am free, and not I, but through Christ in me. Through Christ in me. 
God, your name is holy. Um, you're lifted up uh, above all, all kingdoms and all powers. And every name that is proclaimed, um, there is another, the name of Jesus. And so we bring no boast. Um, we offer no, no goodness um, by which you saved us and no faithfulness by which you keep us. It's all you. And so we just throw ourselves on your mercy and your kindness today and ask that by your kindness, um, you'd empower us to hear and to love and to grow in obedience to your word. And we just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. When we see death, we instantly know that something is wrong. When my grandfather died, I wished he could talk with me again, but he couldn't because he was dead. And I learned early on the painful reality that death is a part of life. The dead people can do nothing, and the living cannot make the dead live. 
I officiated a funeral recently. It was open casket, and there was the corpse, uh, shell of a body, and clear the soul was gone. We even apply death to more than our bodies. We, we talk of marriages dying or relationships and friendships dying. We talk about companies dying. And what we know is that when something dies, it, it ceases. And some people will even say they feel dead inside. Well, they're still living and breathing, but maybe life hasn't gone the way they want it. They look in the mirror, they realize this is not who I am or want to be. Life crumbled, hopes dashed, dreams didn't work out. Maybe that's you. The world tells of failure and death. God's work in the life of a believer tells a different story. One of life from the dead. And for believers, it's good for us to look back at our backstory and realize what God has done. He took us from spiritual death to life. We were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so that when we physically die, we keep on living. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And what Ephesians 2, 1-3 tells us is it tells us what we, what we once were before God made us what we now are. That all in Christ were once dead. That believers were spiritually dead before God made them spiritually alive. And this comes on the heels of chapter 1, that this glorious gospel truth of God's eternal plan in choosing from all humanity some who would be predestined to sonship in his family through Christ. And then chapters 2 and 3 really explain how that eternal plan gets carried out. God makes sinners into saints and adds them into his church, into Christ's body. But it's interesting what Paul is doing here. After telling them in chapter 1 like how alive they are and what God did to save them, and how powerful God is in them, Paul dredges back into the past to remind believers just how dead they were. They were on a crash course, headed for hell, running in the opposite direction from God, following Satan, living like pagans, sinful, condemned, like everyone else. And the first ten verses of chapter 2 shows how Dead sinners deserving God's wrath become living trophies of God's grace. In the first three verses, we, we see four uh, pre-conversion realities that are true of every believer. Four things that are true of every believer before they were saved. And believers know this. These are things that believers know. Unbelievers do not know these things. If you're not a believer today, you don't know that you're spiritually dead. But if you're a believer today, you know these things were true of you before you got saved. And the first is this. You know that you were dead in your sin. Verse 1 tells us, And you, plural, all believers, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. All believers were spiritually dead. It weren't just some or some of the worst. It was all believers. And this is the summary of the past life. 
of a, of, a, of a believer who used to be dead as a doornail, spiritually speaking, unable to do anything, lifeless, useless, you know, like alive to sin but dead to God, says you were dead. It's a condition before God took gracious action on your behalf. It describes us spiritually, not physically. I mean, verses 2 and 3 make it very clear that we were very much alive physically. So how is it? How is it that a living, breathing, working, playing person can be dead? I mean, you're doing life, you're going to school, you're going to work, you're hanging out with your family and friends, you're doing your hobbies, outwardly you look okay, you don't feel dead. Well, first of all, the truth about us is the complete opposite of what the world tells you about yourself. The world just tells you, you know, you're basically good, and, and you just believe in yourself, and you can do anything. And by the way, a spiritually dead person can do some amazing things as an image bearer of God. Works of art, and playing sports amazingly, and humanitarian work, but, but nothing spiritually, because of, of, uh, they're not connected to the vine. You might look spiritual, but you have no pulse for spiritual biblical truth. You're detached, you're distant from the true God. It's like the prodigal son was considered dead, was lost, and when he returned home, he was reckoned alive or found. Spiritual death would not have been a surprise to the Ephesians to consider uh, the same kind of words were used in Judaism, in Greek philosophy, in the Stoic writings. That just as the physically dead cannot communicate with the living the spiritually dead cannot communicate with the living God. That you're separated, you're lost, you're dead, you're unable. Verse 1 says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Those are synonyms. It's denoting a conscious, deliberate, false steps. The willful acts that you committed against God's holiness and righteousness, a failure to live rightly, uh, trespasses is drawing attention to the acts of sin that you committed. Uh, sins is a more, a more comprehensive uh, idea of all human evil. That we, before coming to know Christ, the Christian was dead, uh, committing sin in a, in, a, um, in a sinful state, and wretched and guilty because of their sins. And it's total depravity, it's lostness, uh, resulting in this utter inability to either know or please God. It wasn't just, you know, little mistakes, as some people want to call it. Uh, we were guilty of acts of treachery against God, that we uh, committed cosmic treason against God, that we were, as Colossians 2.13 says, dead in transgressions, which literally means sick in a fever to death. That this is talking about sin's total dominion over Adam's children, that Jew and Gentile alike are born in Adam, are representative as, as regards to sin. And this wickedness permeates our thoughts and words and actions because we reflect Adam's character. And when you think about uh, um, you know, total depravity, what you think is that no one commits every possible sin. Yet we emerge from the womb 100% inclined to break God's law. We inherited the guilt from Adam, our representative, and when he sinned, we sinned, so we arrived DOA, basically dead on arrival, 
into this world, spiritually dead. I mean, think, think about it. Since the fall, things only got worse. Mankind fought God more egregiously, transgressing his law, suffering the degrading effects of sin. As Romans put it, uh, did not honor him as God, did not give thanks, became futile, were given over. Romans 5 talks about being sinners who were weak and ungodly and incapable. This is the lot of every human being, unless and until God opens their heart to the gospel. Sin is the cause of the spiritual death of all people, and you remain in that condition unless and until God acts on your behalf. In Romans 3, it tells us Jews and Greeks are all under sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we know that sin has not destroyed the image of God entirely or completely. It has radically marred the image of God such that we are depraved and unable to come to God apart from the new birth. Total depravity, inability, morally incapable of responding to God apart from God's grace. So you do not come into the world, you know, a little bit sick, but you, you come into the world completely spiritually dead. That you were not, as Miracle Max said in The Princess Bride, mostly dead. You weren't like a dead battery that just needed to be recharged. You were totally dead. And you needed a miracle that only God could perform. And not only were you dead in your sin, but the second reality is that you were deceived in your sin. Verse 2, the sin in which you once walked. Uh, the living, walking dead, if you will. You were alive physically, and then were doing evil deeds, dead spiritually, unable to do truly good deeds, because you were following the course of this world. That's a reference to the ungodly world structures and mindsets and worldviews that oppose God and his rule. You were following the prince of the power of the air. That's the idea of you were serving Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience is a Hebrew expression, indicates the chief characteristic is disobedience. The devil was your leader, your ruler. He, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving so they would not understand the gospel. You did not understand the gospel. You were dead to the gospel. And the spiritually dead not only live by the values of, these, of this present age, but under the control of the leader of this present age who rules over this evil world. The living dead still walk this earth. Every ounce of mind and will bent toward evil, unregenerate live according to the values of this present age, in step with the world, and according to the wishes of the devil who rules the world. He is in control of the spiritual atmosphere. He is the spirit presently working in the sons of disobedience. The world system is controlled by the devil, so the unregenerate do what the world does because the devil wants it. And the entire human race is in rebellion against God. Genesis 6.12 told us, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, that the entire inclination of the flesh is moral excess. And you're going to fail because you're dead. A lot of graduations coming up right now, and you're going to graduate if you passed all your courses. You're going you're to graduate if, if you got through the school, they're not going to say, you know, we're going to let you graduate even though you don't really have all the units and you failed all your classes. Well, before salvation, you were left out because you did not qualify. You failed. Chapter 4 put it this way. You were excluded from the life of God. And not only dead, but deceived, disobedient, following 
the world and the habits and the attitudes and the lifestyles. First John 2 puts it this way. You were following the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That every Christian knows they followed Satan, the prince and ruler of demons and of this world. If you're sitting there now and saying, oh, I never did, you don't understand what the Bible says about you before you got saved. If you truly got saved. Because we needed Jesus to rescue us from this present evil age. Not only were you dead in your sin, and not only were you deceived in your sin, but the third reality is that you delighted in your sin. Verse 3 says, Among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. We lived, that means we conducted our life that way. It's, it's the social action of the person. Where, where he says that we walked, it's the personal action. We did evil deeds. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. As Colossians 1 puts it, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Some who became believers very early in life are like, well, I didn't. Well, you would have. Your impulses and, and what you plan out are hostile against God. And, and we're like hostile, arrogant hoodlums against God. We're like murderers against God, capable of heinous crimes and unmitigated evil. I just heard this week in Colorado this happened. Three young men were dropping landscaping rocks on passing cars from an overpass, and one crushed through a windshield and crushed the skull of a young woman in her car, killing her. And they were so happy about it that they chased the car down after it crashed and took pictures. I know that's a, you know, a crazy thing to hear. But I think there's a lot of times that we think, my sin's not that bad. Not as bad as someone else's. The unconverted are not only under the pressure of the world system and its commander's control, they enjoy it. James 4 put it this way, anyone who is a friend, literally a close confidant and companion of the world, is an enemy of God. And verse 3 tells us that they love the desires of the flesh, they indulge those desires. I mean, you know, what, what about playing that game where it's, hey, when are you happiest? You know, when are you happiest? Well, I think there's a lot of people who are, who are happy in their sin. And, and they sometimes admit it. Well, this is what I like the most. When are you happiest? The unsaved are often happy in their sin. We do what everybody else did, according to the leader of this ungodly world. We followed the devil's agenda. We enjoyed it. We did what pleased our bodies and minds. Because our ancestor Adam sinned, we by nature are sinners too. And we delighted in sinful desires, and we could not please God. This is what these three verses are telling us. Not only were we dead in our sin and deceived in our sin, and not only did we delight in our sin, but the fourth reality is we were doomed in our sin. That if you're a Christian today, you know now that you were doomed in your sin before Christ saved you. And you were doomed justly under God's wrath. It says in verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath, rebellious, unregenerates who stand condemned before God, going further down this dark, shadowy rabbit hole. Mankind's fallen condition in Adam is not the result of social conditioning. It is by nature, by nature, children of wrath. I think we could very easily lose an appreciation of how shocking this is. The whole world, Jew and Gentile, stands condemned apart from Christ. 
In Romans 3, 9, we all, both Jew and Greek, were by nature children of God's wrath. See, we want to look at people and say, but they're, they're good, they're kind. Surely God would not send them to hell. By nature, all except Christ Jesus were conceived in sin. The emphasis in these verses is upon being powerless to do anything good to please God by nature, spiritual failures. Every Christian knows that that was their condition before they came to Christ. The child of wrath is by his relationship to his parent under God's wrath and will be disobedient unless and until something changes that they cannot bring about. See, left to ourselves, we would suffer wrath and die in our sins. And our willful acts of transgression and disobedience bring the wrath. Jesus put it this way in John 3.36. Now, we love to quote John 3.16. We don't love to quote John 3.36 as often. He says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So there is no way that men and women and boys and girls by themselves can escape the deadly consequence. It is only by God's intervening grace that we can be delivered. You can make a shelter from a storm. You can even build a bomb shelter. But apart from Christ, no shelter from God's just wrath. You can't cover yourself up. All things, as the writer of Hebrews says, all things in your life, in your heart, are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We were doomed, like the rest of mankind, spiritually lost, tragic, hopeless, rightly under God's judgment. He is right to condemn us in our sins, that he is holy. He will not sweep sin under the rug. Some people think, well, you know, the God in the Old Testament was a God of wrath, but the God in the New Testament is a God who turns a blind eye to sin. Never. It's the same God. And, and that same God is patient, and the door of mercy is open even now. But the coming wrath of God will be worse than the flood and worse than Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction, and fury will be unleashed. As Hebrews 10.31 tells us, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That he is righteous in judgment. And, he, and he's not like our revenge. He's not like our outbursts of anger. He will punish sin and sinners justly in righteousness. And every Christian understands that they were dead before they became alive. Now, some Christians have ways to still put themselves in the driver's seat. Um, you must understand your deadness in sin to understand new life in Christ. You must understand your deadness in sin to understand regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit to make you alive spiritually, uh, that gives you a love for God and his word and his people. There are a lot of people that say, well, there's a little spark of life left. Well, we weren't completely dead. They deny Ephesians 2.1. They explain it away. You were dead. Some will say, though, no, there's a little spark of life left. 
It's like in the movies when, when the person looks dead, right? But, but it's really alive, and everyone who's watching the movie knows except the person who's trying to get them. People will say, oh, yeah, we, we still have a little bit of life left. And some people will say this, we're alive before the Spirit gives us life. That They'll say, we desire Jesus on our own, then we believe in him, then the Spirit makes us new creatures. You know, Romans 3 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one, no one seeks for God. Verse 1 here reveals that we are born spiritually dead with no desire to love God. We cannot resurrect ourselves. We cannot desire God unless and until he initiates. That you do not believe in order to be alive. The Spirit makes you alive so that you can believe. See, without God's gracious initiative, we stay dead. As a human being, you have power to choose many things, but you are dead to the things of God. No desire for the things of God would never choose God unhelped. We do what we want. And apart from Christ, we are alive to sin and dead to God. And what we see here, especially in these, these 10 verses, is the Spirit displays the greatness of the power of God in bringing dead men and women and children to life, giving people a desire to please God and, and the ability to trust in Christ for salvation. So that when you believe in Jesus, you don't say, well, I just became more committed. No, I, I was blind, now I see. I was dead, and now I live. God had mercy on you. And it wasn't because you got baptized. And it wasn't because you grew up in a Christian home. And it wasn't because you joined a church. And it wasn't because you chose Jesus. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you. And it's not that you did your part and God did his part. It's not that God cast one vote and Satan cast one vote and you cast the deciding vote. No, you hear the gospel and believe and life begins at regeneration. Salvation is monergistic. It's, it's the work of one, not two, not you. It's the work of one. And every believer knows they were dead before God made them alive. They know it from here. They know it from their own life. You know you were previously dead. It's not, oh, no, no, no. I was awesome and God made me more awesome. Maybe awesomer. No, I was dead and God had mercy on my soul. He raised me to life like Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. He chose me, adopted me, gave me inheritance with no shred of effort or worthiness on my part. All by grace, I was made alive. So how do you know if you're spiritually alive? How do you know if you're really a Christian today, now? Like you weren't born a Christian you have not always been a Christian. There are a lot of people who are, can be part of the visible church. You can be a member of a church, an attender of a church, yet not be saved. You could be spiritually dead, not be a part of the invisible church of real believers trusting in Jesus. So what are the signs of life? How do you know if God made you alive from the dead? And by the way, Christians know that they were made alive from the dead. Unbelievers don't know it. They can't admit it. They would say, how dare you? What are the signs of life? I'll give you seven. 
Seven signs of life. Seven ways you know if, if you've been made spiritually alive. The first is this. You believe the gospel. You love the gospel. You relish the gospel. You, you enjoy the gospel. You rehearse the gospel to yourself because you know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You believe the gospel. And it's what's true about you and not others is that you receive the love of the truth in order to be saved. You received the love of the truth in order to be saved. You believe the gospel. The truth sets you free. Jesus is the truth. The gospel of the grace of God in Christ is the truth. What did Jesus say? John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. 1 John 5, 4 says, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How do you, want, you know, have proof that you're alive? You'll love the gospel. You believe the gospel. Secondly, you are convicted of and confess your sins. You, you have the constant Roman 7 battle with sin that is common to all believers. You want to please the Lord, yet you find it easy to be discouraged over the lack of growth or even regressing. It goes like this, once saved, always repenting. Once saved, always repenting. You struggle with sin, your awareness of those things is one more sign of regeneration. You're convicted of and confess your sins. Third, you understand the word of God. The Holy Spirit illumines the word of God such that you understand it. There's some, some things hard to understand, but for the most part, you can pick up a Bible and go, yes, praise God. I get it. Fourth, you love God. You used to hate God. Now you love him who first loved you. You, you love your heavenly father. And fifth, you love the body of Christ, your family. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Do you love your family in Christ? Number six, you desire to please and serve the Lord. You wake up in the morning and you don't plan out pleasing your flesh. You say, I want to please Jesus. I want to serve the Lord. Yes, I'm weak, but he gives me strength. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. And seventh, you desire to, to be with Jesus, to, to go to heaven. You want heaven because it means being with Jesus. He, he is always with us. Jesus promised, I am with you always. But heaven is where we will be with Jesus forever. And as Samuel Rutherford put it, your first night's welcome in glory will be like stepping from a prison to a palace. And you look forward to that day. Signs of life. You, you believe the gospel. You, you're convicted of and confess your sins. You understand the word. You love God. You love the body of Christ. You desire to serve the Lord. You desire to go to heaven. And you were dead in sin. Or you still are. You were deceived. Or you still are. You, you did delight in evil deeds. Or you still do. You were doomed under God's wrath. Or you still are. These three verses could not be clearer. We are not morally good. We are not morally neutral. This pictures the depth of our depravity. It magnifies, though, the mercy and the grace of God in saving lost sinners. How do you, 
How do you respond to that? If you're a Christian, what do you do with that? What, I, what I've been thinking about is what kind of emotions, or better yet, what kind of resolve do these, do these verses call for? What do they engender? What do they elicit? What do they provoke? What, what would be the outcome of us hearing these three verses? And I found, and, I, and I've seen this over and over in Scripture, and I, I went back and checked again this week, and it, it, it remains true that when there is a reminder in Scripture of what God has done and what you used to be like, it comes with a motive to, to refresh the faith of the sometimes unfaithful. And sometimes we're unfaithful. And God is always faithful. He cannot deny himself. And there, when, when there's reminders in Scripture of, of what we were like and what God has done, it comes with this motive to refresh the faith of those that find themselves sometimes unfaithful. That there would be a renewed resolve to praise God. There would be a, a, a renewed resolve to unify with believers. That there would be a renewed resolve to humbly make a difference through living and sharing the gospel. Because, and, and, I'll, and, I, and I'll, I'll word it this way, the, the formerly dead become faithfully defiant. That you used to defy God. Now you defy the world, the flesh, and the devil and do what God calls you to do in his strength and for his glory. That the formerly dead become faithfully defiant and the, the first thing you would do is that you would praise God's glorious grace. Over and over again, we, we read this in chapter 1, that the believer's response to, to God's saving work is that, wow, Christ is the true and better Adam. He brings the dead to life. And I'm going to defy, and this is what you'll have to do. If you want to praise the glories of God's grace, today or tomorrow or any other day in your life, you're going to have to defy all the other voices clamoring for your attention and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Verse 12, so that we might be, where the first to hope in Christ might be, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That we who were dead in sin and distant from God, that Satan ruled over us and God's wrath burned against us, and that if we would have spiritual life, it would have to be entirely due to God's grace in Christ. Well, Christian, if you're a Christian today, you were dead. You were depraved, deceived, disobedient, doomed. But God, but God, God decreed to bring you from death to life. Praise his glorious grace. Praise it. There's no reason, no shred of evidence that you would ever look down on anyone else, but that you would just prostrate yourself before Jesus and give God the glory with the weakness and meekness of a dove. The response of a believer would be to defy every other voice clamoring for our attention and we would praise the glories of God's grace. And the, and the response of a Christian would also be that you would live to please Jesus who died to give you life. 
That when you are aware of your former deadness in sin, that's a sign of life. I was once blind, now I see. I was once dead, now I live. But to be able to please Christ, you're going to have to choose to defy the world, the flesh, and the devil and depend on Christ. That you can't just say, well, it'll work out. You need to want that. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. One died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Believers, once freed from sin, once made alive, how do you live? Before you came to know Christ, you chose evil. You could not choose good. But in Christ, you can choose good, but sometimes still choose evil. And sin like a riptide pulls you back in. We know how it goes. That's why when you get to chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul says this, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, Christians, you must no longer live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. It's possible for a Christian who says they're a believer, who truly is a believer, to live like the Gentiles do. Do not any longer live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Like, don't get hard of heart. Confess your sins. He says, they become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And he says, that is not how you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. And then he kind of says it this way, so assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him, like Christian, if you're a Christian, you need to do what the Bible says. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and you be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Christian, now you can live pleasing to God. Now you can walk worthy of the calling. Don't be reckless. And one more response I want to share to you is this, is that a Christian who knows they were dead and now alive, they can share their testimony. Like, you should share your testimony and implore others to repent and believe. But if you're going to share your testimony and implore others to, to repent and believe, then you need to defy your tendency to discriminate and decide, I'm going to show and tell the gospel. I've got a testimony. I'm not going to profile anybody. I'm going to give I'm not going to discriminate against anybody with the gospel. I'm going to give the gospel freely. In 2 Corinthians 4, it tells us this. Having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But with the open statement of truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's the kind of life you should be trafficking in, Christian. And it says this, even if our gospel is veiled, if it's hidden, if it can't be seen, it's because it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, 
The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 5 goes on to say, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. We need to be reminded. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. And we are, here it is, ambassadors for Christ. That you have been appointed an ambassador for Christ in every place that you have a key or a key code or a key card or permission to enter. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, every believer I run into, most every believer I run into, most Christians want the spiritually dead to live. They want them to live, but they cannot make them live. We were never meant to die. Death came into the world due to sin. We live in a broken world, death and bad stuff. And no creative presentation on your part can make the dead live. You get on your knees, you pray for the spiritually dead, that God would bring them to life. Then proclaim the gospel with everything you've got. I think of Lydia in Acts 16. God opened her heart to believe what she heard being preached. Romans tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you're going to do this, you have to be a humble, bold, defiant one. You're going to have to defy the world, the flesh, and the devil that is telling you people are generally good. They don't need eternal life. They don't need new life because they're already alive. Oh, they just you know, need to be nudged along. You need to defy the world, the flesh, and the devil and declare that all people are worthy of hearing and seeing Christ's love from your lips and your life such that when they encounter Jesus, they must decide which way to turn. Because Hebrews 9.27 tells us, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So defy your sinful tendency to discriminate against those you deem unworthy. Defy sin. Decide to bless so that all who see and hear may, must decide one way or another that they're either going to depend on Jesus or they're going to defy him. The question has been asked many times. Well, if you believe that only God saves, and if you believe that God is sovereign in salvation with no help from man, why would you get up in the morning and do evangelism? Best answer in the world. Guaranteed success. Guaranteed success. God will save whom he will save. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. You know, you can do as little about the deadness of people you care about than you can about, than you could about your, your own deadness when you were dead in sin. Except that now, you're aware and you care and God has appointed you as a minister of reconciliation, and you don't make it happen 
but you can deliver the good news that God uses to change the will of some who are totally opposed to him. Think about what he did in Saul, Paul's life. You know, OGK, only God knows what he's going to do and when. And God will give you the strength you need in, in your weakness to be the witness he wants. I have found that the testimony of every believer is God saved me when I was dead in sin. Unbelievers cannot admit they're, that they're dead. Believers know the mercy. Verses 1 to 3, they, they just relive the painful part of every believer's testimony. That we would remember it's a display of God's perfect patience and then rejoice in this testimony to the gloriousness of the grace of God and his magnificent mercy. The believers were spiritually dead before God made them spiritually alive, that, that we were dead in our sins, that we were deceived in our sins, that we delighted in our sin, that we were doomed in our sin, yet God decreed to bring us from death to life. And just like a diamond on, on black velvet, the gospel appears in verse 4. But God. Do you know these three verses, the subject of those three verses is in verse 4. God. God's the subject. You go three whole verses, and then you find the subject. God. But God being rich in mercy. We'll see it next time. But let's just take a little taste. Mercy, verse 4. Compassion. Pity. It's the emotion aroused by someone in need that, that you can act to relieve them and remove the trouble. Well, God's mercy allevi alleviates the misery that your sin brings. God saw your dead misery and acted on your behalf of his own good pleasure, planned before time began. So praise his glorious grace in Christ. When we see death, we instantly know something is wrong. Let the formerly dead become faithfully defiant as we depend on Christ and his mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy your grace, your love. Thank you, Lord, that we could even know the truth and be set free by it. And know that we were spiritually dead before you made us spiritually alive. We praise your glorious grace. In Christ's name, amen.
Before we go, I have a few announcements. Uh, Vacation Bible School is June 19th to the 23rd, and sign-ups open today. This is for kids entering K through 6th grade. And also, uh, there's a family game night this Friday night on the 5th. Uh, There's a quarterly men's event on June 10th. Uh, Midweek, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel 37, God Raising the Dead. Uh, we have uh, a lot of babies being born, but Shiloh Hayes Ruiz was born to Justice and Reuben on April 24th. Welcome this new gift from God. And uh, Go With Grace, architectural plans have been submitted. We're hoping for a response in the next 30 days, and then we could start getting permits to uh, break ground. And then be praying for those that are either on uh, missions, uh, trips, or will be going we uh, have Aiden Van Eck going on a short-term sports ministry outreach from May 31st to July 29th. Also, Alan Weisenberger and Dan Martin are leaving on the 6th to go back to Turkey, uh, to, to another city, actually to, to Antioch, uh, where, where people were first called Christians in Antioch. And they're going to go there for until uh, the 20th. And then um, I think that's about as many announcements as I should make. Okay, uh, let's... Uh, Let's, have, uh, let's close with John chapter 5 and verses 21 to 24. For as the, these are the words of Jesus. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Thank you, Lord, for giving life to the dead. May we serve your purposes this day and every day you grant us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me in the